rewriting of the Odyssey called the Penelope Ad that was commissioned very recently and published in 2005. We'll read it without any context and then we'll think about it. It comes at the beginning of the book, it's called The Chorus Line, A Rope Jumping Rhyme. We are the maids, the ones you killed, the ones you failed. We danced in the air, our bare feet twitched. It was not fair. With every goddess, queen and bitch, from there to here, you scratched your itch. We did much less than what you did. You judged us bad. You had the spear. You had the word at your command. We scrubbed the blood of our dead paramours from floors, from chairs, from stairs, from doors. We knelt in water while you stared at our bare feet. It wasn't fair. You licked our fear. It gave you pleasure. You raised your hand. You watched us fall. We danced on air. The ones you failed. The ones you killed. Some of you will recognise the episode on which it's based. It's taken from book 22 of the Odyssey. But even with that knowledge, some of you may find some prompts are helpful. So let's put this rope song in its Homeric context. Book 22 of the Odyssey is one of the most exciting books of the epic. It's the book where the revenge is finally <coughs> achieved. It opens with the spectacular killing of Antinous, who's the ringleader of the suitors. And from that moment on, it's action-packed, it's an incredibly pacey narrative, and I think our sense of justice is satisfied. Or, or is it? Let's, let's look at Homer. Following the slaughter of all the suitors, there's blood and guts spattered all over the palace. Someone has to clean it up. Odysseus calls his old nurse Eurycleia. And he asks her the question, which of the twelve, oh, sorry, which of the female servants has slept with the suitors in my absence? In other words, who has betrayed me? Eurycleia, the nurse, identifies twelve. And unceremoniously, they're brought out <coughs> into the yard to clean up the 
brought in rather to clean the remains of their lovers. And when they finish, Odysseus orders his son Telemachus to hew them to bits, to chop them up outside in the yard. And Telemachus and his helpers take them out into the courtyard where an even worse fate meets them. So that's number two on your handout. And I'd like to look at that um, so that we can think of what we've heard in the Atwood in the light of what we find in Homer. So this is book 22. When the whole house had been put in order, the men took the women out of doors between the roundhouse and the strong courtyard wall and penned them inside a narrow space from which there was no way out. Then Telemachus addressed his helpers. Never let it be said that sluts like these had a clean death from me. They have heaped up outrage on me and on my mother. They have been the suitor's concubines. So he spake and stretched a ship's cable between the tall pillar and the roundhouse, fastening it high up so that no woman's feet could touch the ground. Just as long-winged thrushes, or just as doves on their way to roost, strike against a snare set in a thicket and find their death in what should have been their sleeping place, so with their heads in a single line the women's necks were all caught and noosed to make them die the most piteous death. For a little while later, their feet kept writhing, but not for long. This then <laughs> is a minor incident in Book 22, or so we usually feel. Indeed, the poet Simon Armitage, when he adapted the Odyssey for the radio recently, he chose to omit this episode altogether from his version. In Atwood, as we've seen, it becomes central. It is the major determining episode in the story of the Nostos, the return of Odysseus. And in Atwood's version, we see that Odysseus, <coughs> in particular here, is singled out as if he were, indeed, the person who strung up the maids. So Odysseus is implicated, and indeed, he is the prime culprit. And in her version, those of you who read it will know that Penelope herself is involved in this episode. We hear that she has a divine sleep, <coughs> which is seen as incredibly ambiguous in the Atwood text, and we're left to infer that Penelope is guilty of the sin of omission, if not the sin of commission. Now, what has all this, you might ask, got to do with Homer's text? Perhaps some would argue that the episode <coughs> isn't a moral issue for Homer. Having read the Atwood, however, it's very difficult, I think, not to see the episode as problematic, as morally ambiguous. Let's go back to the Homer <coughs> for a minute, especially to the simile, which begins in that second paragraph, just as long-winged thrushes, or just as doves, 
these up with. So with their heads in a single line, the women's necks were all called. Now there are comparatively few uh, similes in the Odyssey in comparison with the Iliad. There are more, however, the majority of those similes occur in this section, <coughs> in the poem. And indeed, there are three similes in Book 22 alone. Odysseus has already been compared to a lion after he's gorged himself on his prey. And uh, so we have this image of Odysseus uh, like a gorge line with blood on his mane. That itself, perhaps, is slightly ambiguous. And now we have here, in this episode, <coughs> in this section number two on your handout, the maids. The maids who are compared to birds caught in a snare with their twitching legs. A very powerful <coughs> and, of course, a very chilling simile. What's its effect? Well, like all similes, extended similes, Homeric similes, they arrest the flow, the narrative flow, in order to find a parallel that takes us, of course, beyond the narrative present. And the effect of that, of course, is to freeze the action. It holds the action in a state of suspended animation. That suspension, of course, invites questioning. And now, I think in particular, having read the Atwood, it makes us question quite a lot. We see it now as an even more hideous and poignant image. Perhaps even a, a terrible and terrifying moment of utter barbarity. The twelve maids, if you remember, have been raped by the suitors. And of course, we now feel that they are hideously punished by a male system, a patriarchal system, for something that they had themselves very little power to resist. I'll stop a moment and say that that's not necessarily the correct reading of the events of Book 22, but it's definitely a possible reading. What I want to stress is that rewritings of Homer, rewritings of any classical text, like Atwood's here, throw new light on those ancient texts. They invite us, very often, to read those texts differently. As we read the new text, the reworkings, we acquire new perceptual filters. And then, and I think this is the crux, it's then very difficult, and I would say, actually, it's impossible to clean those filters that we have acquired through these modern or subsequent rewritings. And indeed, this idea that it is indeed impossible to clean our perceptual filters has now become a central tenet of thinking within classics. Indeed, generally, people will tell you that, of course, it's naive to think that we could ever clean those filters. If we accept this, it then becomes possible, and indeed, you could say, imperative to study receptions 
rewritings of classical material, not just to study them, but actually to study them together with their sources, with their classical sources. The history of the ancient text's reception, how it's been received through the years, really has an important role in what we do now. And if you look at your handout, for example, the, <coughs> the image at the top from the attic red figure vase, Kirka 440, um, by the so-called Penelope painter, that is, of course, a reception in itself, an ancient and very relatively early reception. Virgil, his Aeneid, is another, another reception of Homer. We can't recover the original Homer, but we can at least be aware of how those other versions of Homer, in this case, Atwood's, influence our readings. You can come to Oxford now, <coughs> and you can spend two terms studying the reception of classical literature in the 20th century uh, in poetry in England. Sometimes, Classical precedents, of course, have been a burden <coughs> and perceived as a burden and something that the writer wishes to resist, absolutely. It's a language half remembered, half spoken, and very often, of course, dead, and achingly far away. But mostly, I think, classical literature, as indeed you can feel in, in, in the Atwood it's a source of inspiration. Um, it's a way of exploring often pressing and sometimes very difficult issues at one remove. Now, of course, the Atwood may or may not be interesting to you in its own right, in its own context, because it does, of course, say a lot about 21st century sensibilities, kind of post-feminist concerns and so on. So it's interesting as a text in itself. And so if you come here to study English, you study Derek Walcott, and you study his version of the Odyssey within the English faculty, Omeros. But you can also, but not together, I have to say, study it in classics as a classicist on the 20th century course. So it's interesting in its own right. But what I think is interesting, and why classicists should be interested and concerned with reception, is that some of these reworkings unleash really relatively unexplored insights into the ancient text. Because of something new, we are sent back through a rereading to the text. Now, if we turn to <coughs> passage three and four, or sorry, passage three, two excerpts from an African version of Oedipus by the playwright, the Nigerian playwright, Ola Rotimi, called The Gods Are Not to Blame. Rotimi wrote his play against a background of, 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 of the Biafran War, which was Nigeria's civil war from 1967 to 1970. At this time, particularly in Rotimi's view, tribal identity was seen as the root cause of the civil strife. And in Rotini's version, which I really strongly uh, urge you to, to, to look at, I mean, I think it's one of the most successful um, Oedipuses, rewriters of Oedipus in the 20th century, 
Um, Martini's version reminds us just how important biological relations are between the characters in Sophocles' play. I say how important biological relations are because very often people think of the Oedipus and think of simply the incest and the parasite. And then they look at Sophocles' Oedipus at Colonus and they realise actually it's that play where pollution and guilt are uppermost. In Oedipus, uh, Tyrannos, Oedipus Rex, Oedipus the king, that is less so. What is important there, however, is the biological relations between the characters. Think for a moment, what does the title Oedipus Turanos mean? What does that Turanos mean? It literally means the outsider, the non-hereditary monarch. The king who has come from outside rather than inherited the throne. And Oedipus as outsider is felt very keenly, particularly at moments, for example, with Creon and Tiresias in the play. Now, in Rotini's rewriting, these biological identities are central. So the parasite takes place between a, uh, because there's a quarrel over land, and it's fueled by tribal hostility. So if we have a very quick look at um, Number three, the first passage. The old man stops laughing. You from the bush tribe come to these parts and boldly call me thief or Diwali, who's the Oedipus character. Where am I from? Old man, he calls his men. Gabonka, Olojo, come, come quickly, come and listen to this man's tongue. The two men run over with their hose and we then hear the Oedipus character say, that is the end. I can bear insults to myself, brother, but to call my tribe Bush and then summon riffraff to mock my mother tongue, I will die first. And when, the very second passage here, when the Oedipus figure, the Odawali figure, discovers the truth about his identity, he says it's because of tribal allegiance, it's not the end has not come about. My fate, my miserable fate, is not because of the gods. Hence the title, the gods are not to blame. This Oedipus Odawali says, no, no, don't blame the gods. Let no one blame the powers. My people learn from my fall. The powers would have failed if I didn't let them use me. They knew my weakness. The weakness of a man easily moved to the defense of his tribe against others. Now, what has tribal identity got to do with Sophocles, Oedipus, Tyrannus? Stop and have a think about <clears throat> 451 BC. Pericles' citizenship law placed undue emphasis on biological identity. It insisted that both parents had to be Athenian in order for you to become an Athenian citizen. Now, the plague made the effects of that legislation keenly felt. And people have often pointed out the irony that Pericles himself was affected by his own legislation. He lost his last legitimate son to the plague in 429. 
And according to Plutarch, the legislation <coughs> was waived in sympathy, and his son, by the non-Athenian, by his non-Athenian mistress, Aspasia, was exceptionally allowed to become a citizen. Now, I'm not trying to say that Sophocles is condemning this legislation. He's not writing a play against this legislation. I'm not saying that in the least. But I think it's true to say that we very often forget that, that the problematic nature of that legislation is actually behind this play. And it has also been pointed out that it is possibly also behind Euripides' Hippolytus, where illegitimacy, Hippolytus' illegitimacy, is a major concern. Now, Sophocles then isn't condemning this legislation outright, whereas Rotini clearly is. I mean, he's saying, not from a legislation, but he's saying if you privilege your tribal divisions, your biological identity, you mask other allegiances. And of course, in this case, he means pan-African allegiances in a post-colonial world. What Rotini's version then has done is sent us back <coughs> to Sophocles to reread it in a and I think this is quite important, in a non-Freudian way. It's very difficult for the 20th century, 21st century reader to read, to watch Sophocles play without thinking Freud, without thinking incest, parasite. Actually, there are other important things going on in this play that I suggest a rewriting like Rotimi is not coming, of course, from a sort of post-Freudian bourgeois Western cultural background, he's seeing instead other meanings that are latent in the Sophocles, that are very often ignored by us, overlooked by us. So just as Atwood sent us back to Homer's Odyssey, so too Rotimi sends us back to Sophocles. And I think in both cases, we are made more sensitive, more alert readers in the process. Now to our final example, something completely different, number four. <clears throat> this is Tony Harrison's version of Medea. Medea, a sex war opera written in 1985. Not a play, actually a libretto that was commissioned by the New York Metropolitan Opera uh, for <coughs> performance to a score by Jacob Druckmann that actually was never completed. And so it's never actually been performed. I mean, I understand it's been performed as a play, so the libretto has been made into a play, but it's never actually been performed as intended. A great shame, a great read. It's a very loose adaptation. It's not Euripides' Medea, as you would expect. Why is it helpful? <laughs> well, I think it reminds us, Harrison reminds us, of the ways in which Euripides is only one version, or Euripides' version of Medea was only one version in antiquity. Of course, we have um, Apollonius' Argonautica, the tales, we have other accounts of, 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 of the story, obviously the earlier part of the myth. And in many ways, what I like about Harrison's libretto is that it's a version about versions. It's got huge numbers of versions, ancient and modern, that he's playing off against each other. His text opens with Medea on death row, 
This is Medea on stage in an electric chair. She's going to be electrocuted uh, for the crime of infanticide. The chorus <coughs> are her witnesses for the defence. And they spring to her defence. This is the first line. Um, beneath all Greek mythology are struggles between he and she that we're still waging, sing the chorus. In every quiet suburban wife dissatisfied with married life is Medea raging. Most of the opera consists of flashbacks explaining how Medea ended up killing her children. It goes back to Colchis. It goes to the story of Jason um, and the Argonauts how she sacrificed her family for Jason, and so on. And what Harrison does is introduce a very instructive counterpart to Medea, Heracles. I'm sure you all know Heracles is another child killer from antiquity, from mythology. Why, as they ask in this second passage, he killed his children. I don't hear you. Give even a sotto voce boo. He killed his children. So where is Hercules, electric chair? A child slayer? Or is Medea the one child murderer you fear? He killed his children. So where is Hercules, electric chair? Why no electric chair? Again, as in the other versions, we're forced to kind of sit up. How much of our own readings of Medea are influenced by these double standards, by other kinds of double standards. In the 19th century, she was a victim of divorce. She killed her children in order to prevent them meeting a worse fate. In the early 20th century, she was a feminist icon at suffragette rallies. People would sing, or sorry, declaim her women of Corinth speech in the play. And in the 1980s, she was regularly depicted as a victim of racism. In Tony Harrison's version, as you can see, she's the ordinary housewife. In every quiet suburban wife, dissatisfied with married life, is Medea raging. Not Medea, the granddaughter of Hecate, Helios. Not Medea, the larger-than-life, supernatural figure, but housewife. Now, I'm going to conclude now, sorry, and I realise... Um, there's not going to be a huge amount of time for questions. I just want to say that some cynics, less so now, but in the past, have said that classical reception was really uh, symptomatic of you know, a subject in terminal decline. And in other words, we only ran courses um, in reception to boost student numbers. So you'd have your film option, your popular culture option. But we still have to, I think, ask ourselves, how do we explain continued presence, cultural presence of, of Greece and Rome, in film indeed, and in popular culture more generally. We've seen how rewritings take us back to the ancient texts, and how they ask us to think critically about where our current understandings, our current readings come from. Now it's clearly important not just to remember the past, it's also important to consider how the past itself has been remembered too by other people. How, of course, it's been used, how it's been abused very often by others. And I just would add that in Oxford, you won't just be able to do classical reception, 
but you will be absolutely encouraged to do so as well. So that's my finish. Um, and also, please, any questions, you know, I'm very happy if you have time to say to answer.